0: Howdy everybody and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks. Usually when we take a week off, it's because like we recorded on a sort of non standard day or one of yeah. us was out or or whatever. But last week it was just the the fall movie preview ran three hours yeah. and uh, we just didn't like we were like, let's let's put it off. So uh, we took a a week off in, in, in between um so I've got it's 2 weeks and I've got 10 movies which is um yeah not up to what I would want of my movie a day average but it's much better than I was doing for a while there. Mm-hmm. I think um I feel pretty certain that 2021 is going to end up being like the lowest numbers of movie number of movies watched for me since I started keeping track of that. Like I just year's not over you can i don't know that really i'll have make to. a go of it but i really like uh, uh i don't know I, I i really fell behind with with uh, things being so busy for me for for a while there mm. but uh yeah we'll see maybe i can maybe i can really push through but i am about. i'm like 50 movies off the mark so it's probably not gonna uh, happen okay. uh but i've got 10 you've got five so i'm just gonna Gonna do two right now, and then I'll throw it to you. That's okay. the way the math works. So I'm actually gonna start with I'll just a, zone out. I'm actually gonna start with a, a rewatch um, that I watched the Blu-ray of. Okay. Um, I was telling you that uh, uh, off mic. I was telling you, and uh, a while ago, I was telling you and Scott that I re- uh, someone recently got a new Blu-ray player because my old one was like over ten years old and it was not always working all the time. And one of the things who specifically didn't like it would not play blu-ray discs that came from flicker alley i love flicker alley i love their movies but it just uh it just wouldn't yeah, it would I've load the menu and that's as far as it would get uh
1: and so i had something from Flickr alley uh i don't remember what it was but it had boris karloff in it and uh the menu came up but for some reason i wasn't able to select anything on the menu
0: yeah that uh, happened to me very I, strange but i got a new blu-ray player blu-ray player blu-ray player and uh, now it works just fine and so I was able to uh, re-watch a blu-ray of uh, a movie from 1967 called Spring Night Summer Night directed by Joseph L. Anderson it's a um, you know if you're you're our age Mm -hmm. you know you would uh, we, we would have thought at a younger age that independent cinema started in America with what, like she's got to have it sex, lies and videotape, like late, mid to yeah, late eighties. Yeah, yeah. That's like, we're like, Oh, have you heard of this thing? It's called indie film. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but like people have been making independent movies for a long time. Oh, yes. And spring night, summer night is a truly independent feeling movie because it's, um, you know, not only is it sort of, uh, feels kind of, uh, loosey goosey and, and, and shot on the fly and, uh, and um, uh, I can't remember what else I was—I was, I was going to say maybe low budget, uh, mm-hmm. but also it because it's about a subject matter you would not have seen. It's uh, basically it's an incest story. Oh, nice. it, it takes place. The story covers two nights. If you can, the, the it's not just a clever title. Um, <laughs> one night, um, a brother and his like a teenage brother and his teenage sister like go into town and drink and dance and end up having sex in their car. And then he, and then it cuts to months later and we find out that he like left town, went to like try and make it in the big city, uh, which is Columbus, Ohio. This is like an Appalachian movie. So the big city is Columbus. Um, and he comes back after months away only to find out that his sister is pregnant (sighs) from their, uh, tryst, but she hasn't told anyone. um, so uh, most of the movie takes place on the summer night, which is really a summer day and and night. But um, it's uh, uh, it it, it uh, again. Like I said, you 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 wouldn't see a movie like this in 1967 from from just just anywhere. It feels very specific to its to its place. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm saying like all people, all Appalachian folks are. <laughs> <laughs> our ancestors i mean in in other ways it it, it feels very sure. uh uh specific because it's not just an appellation it's a township and i'm forgetting the name of it i looked up where there was like a military base and like so this is 1967 but like so these characters parents met in the like war and immediate post-war years when their town was actually kind of like a like there were like 20 bars on the main street the the, the the mom says and now it's just like the saddest place in the world um and and so yeah there's a there's a very specific sense of 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 place there and and the, uh, evoking this uh idea of like these these uh children having been born into the world into a world where the good times are already over which is not like probably true of them but like it's very real that a lot of people feel sure that way often you know um Woody Allen made a whole movie about it when Tony I, Soprano talked about it the very first I, episode I, of Sopranos yeah, It's one to, of the first things he says yeah, to yeah. Dr. Melfi is I've uh, lately I've been feeling like I came in at the end of things
1: hmm it's a good line yeah, it's uh in its own way like I when I go back and visit uh, my hometown of Taft, California, which is slowly drying up and blowing away. I mean, there's still like 9,000 people that live there, not a huge uh, amount and significantly fewer people than lived there before. But uh you know, I drive along sort of like Main Street and it's just like one empty business after another and it's very sad yeah. and I often wonder, like, what what must it be like? I mean, I was a kid there at a time when it was, to the degree that Taft, California can thrive, it was thriving. Um, but, uh, and I remember Main Street. I remember there being a lot of places to go on Main Street. Mm-hmm. Now there are very few. And I just found myself wondering, like, what must it be like to be a kid here? Uh, or to be, like, a, a teenager here, especially. Um, and obviously, kids themselves are very resilient, and they can... They can enjoy themselves in any capacity. But uh but I did find myself wondering like, you know, if there's a, if you wanted to go to like a mall or something, you have to drive to Bakersfield to do that. Mm. Um stuff like that. Or even a department yeah. store. Like it had yeah. a Kmart and then went out of business. So wow. yeah. So I think so I, I feel not even like Kmart I get a sense be. of that.
0: Yeah um yeah anyway uh very good movie this is my my second time watching it uh oh yeah and second um my second movie is another flicker alley disc that i've been meaning to to watch and finally get a chance to uh from 1924 a silent german film by director h.k breslauer called the city without jews um oh, i wasn't expecting that last uh, that <laughs> yeah. last word okay um and it's, I think it's more fascinating as a, uh, cultural marker, um, than anything else. The fact that it's a German movie from 1924 yeah. that is actually, really, despite the, like, Flickrelli cover art making it look like a, a horror film, it's actually kind of a, a, a satire. Mm. It's sort of imagines what happens if this country, never named in the movie, um, kicked out all the, all the all the Jewish citizens and all the Jewish residents and like things don't go well. The country kind of falls apart in, in a lot of ways. So it's like that movie that came out
1: like 15 years ago called A Day Without a Mexican? Yes. Is it something like that? Yeah
0: which I okay. never saw but yes that okay. is my uh, did you see A Day Without a Mexican? Uh, yes I did. Okay I remember that I just remember it being at my video store that I worked at.
1: Yeah so it's that, uh, it was very I worked at Blockbuster when it came out on DVD and it was actually a very very popular movie.
0: Um so yeah, I guess it's it's like that, but it's um it's kind of it's it's not that great, the movie, unfortunately. Yeah. Um it has some cool stuff. Like I, I like I like watching silent films to see like what things like they what do they do with the limitations? What what innovations do they come up with or maybe yeah. new and uh there's a part in the movie where a character is very, very drunk and is trying to walk across the floor, and all they're doing is just sort of tipping the camera like a like a boat like rocking just yeah. tipping the camera from left to right as the character's walking nice. like so the character doesn't have to do or the actor doesn't have to do anything differently, nothing's actually happening, yeah, but I feel like weirdly that that simple move like captures the feeling of trying to walk around when you're really drunk sure. better than anything in like the last weekend or so many other things <laughs> that I've, that I've seen. It's so, it's so simple and, and so effective. Um, and then it gets me thinking into like, where did, at what point did, at what point in cinema's history did like the camera become subjective or did someone even think to, to be like, I'm going to recreate what's going on in this person's head with the camera. I yeah. don't know. Like, uh, the other one, I know I've talked about this on the show before, but the thing I think about in um, uh, Carl Theodore Dreyer's Vampire, which is a, a, a great movie, there's a part where a character is like knocking, try, trying. he's like trying to see if the the pub at the, at the hotel or something, the mm-hmm. pub at the inn or whatever, is open and it's not. He's like knocking on the door. And the ca- it cuts to the camera inside the empty pub. There's no one in there. But the camera just sort of gently pushes forward toward the door the guy's knocking on. And it's something you'd see all the time in a movie now, but it's fascinating to me to think like, Oh, someone had to think of that. Like that wasn't common sense to be like, this camera is not representing a person at all, but it's going to move. Yeah. And there's no person in the shot except for the silhouette outside the door. Like I don't know.
1: It's, it's something I try to, I try to convey when I'm teaching like a film history class and it's really, ho- it, somehow it's hard to convey that idea that someone, like all the stuff that we think of as movies, and not even just recently, but starting all the way back, uh, stuff that seemed like old had in the 1930s. Someone at some point had to say, hey, you know, what if we did yeah. this? And undoubtedly, that person was probably met with, no. <laughs> You know, that you can't do that. And not like trying to keep them down, but like, well, that couldn't possibly work. Like the, the concept of, you know, we talk about the Kuleshov effect. It's such a, it's such a no brainer to us that it's like, oh, of course. Well, if you, these things will contextualize each other and we will create yeah. a narrative out of it. But he had to think like, let's try this. Yeah. And
0: yeah. Uh, it, it reminds me of, do you remember know, Paul Tompkins had a bit once about like, corny sayings that like someone came up with him and they were like, he was like, probably the first time someone said, you got this and you got this, you do the math. That was probably hilarious. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, and now it's like a, a hacky thing. It's like um, Paul Gilmartin's, uh,
1: uh, when we did a, a, a live show that he performed at, he talked about like the concept of the greatest thing since sliced bread. Meanwhile, like the first time someone had sliced bread, they go, this is the greatest thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Oh, man. Yeah. Okay, I could just tell. uh, Yeah. Because that reminds me of Pete Holmes's bit about like I've never been to a rodeo, but if I went to a rodeo, I'd constantly be saying this is my first rodeo. (laughs) Where do I sit? I'm sorry. This is my first rodeo. Pete Holmes. Uh, Uh, You should have him back on the show. I agree. Uh, All right, I've Um, kind of kept up with him on Facebook, oddly. Uh, So Um, anyway, um, it's just fascinating that this movie was made, you know, and then 10 years later uh, these things would really start to actually yeah. start to, to happen. Um, so it's, yeah, it's definitely a fascinating movie. The, the, like, um, uh, it's weird to see a movie that like, I guess was thought lost to time and then found at like a Parisian flea market, a print that was in, it's in such good condition. It's amazing that the movie can mm-hmm. go from like being, a lost movie to being like to flickerally putting on this blu-ray that looks great it looks mm-hmm. fantastic um but yeah that's the the city without Jews or as my wife called it when she said when i was trying to pick out a movie to watch she was like i'll tell you right now i'm not watching all the Jews are dead or whatever <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, oh that's... boy uh okay so i watched a film directed by one moment please uh, Garrett Price uh, the film is Woodstock 99 Peace Love and Rage Oof, I've heard it's uh, it's a rough sit it is yeah. uh, but it is nonetheless fascinating um, especially if you've seen the original Woodstock documentary this is not trying to be that this is obviously a retrospective um, but it's it just invites you to compare like what changed between 1969 and mm-hmm. 1999 um, especially when you realize that there was a Woodstock '94, and everything was fine. So then, what changed between '94 and '99? Um, yeah. And I think it's just a, there are a number of things. And I like that the film explores a lot of different avenues. And what a, what it really seems to come down to is that a certain group came of age or got to a certain point, and Ninety nine. I mean, there's a reason that fight club, uh, not that it was a particularly popular movie at the time, but why it has gained a cult following and why it resonated with certain people. The idea of like the, the young, the specifically the young and inexperienced, like white guy, uh, the idea that, uh, that certain movies and certain bands would appeal to a sort of an anger uh, misplaced or, or not, uh, within that. And with and they mention in the, uh, in the documentary that like, for whatever reason, this, the Woodstock 99 seemed to be disproportionately like young white guys who are just like, uh, Limp Biscuit fans mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And I, and, and, you know, incidentally, like the, the producers of Woodstock try to blame it on like Limp Bizkit. And it's like, look, I'm no fan of Fred Durst, (laughs) but at the same time, that's ridiculous. And to the, to the credit of, of some of the commentators, you know, some of the cultural commentators, they themselves say like, yeah, I'm no, I don't like Fred Durst and I don't like his attitude and I don't like what his music is, but this is bigger than that. And in the end he was doing what he always, he was just doing what he does. Um, And, But it's there just seemed to be uh, the quote unquote right combination of elements, Mm -hmm. including just like the way the the festival was run logistically um, that just led to like a very specific type of anger and rage. And there's a very interesting moment uh, where you see. Because they do address a lot of the, you know, a lot of, like, sexual harassment and sexual abuse of, of young women. And, and I heard
0: there's a lot of that caught, like, you, you, you actually do, you see, see people see, being groped and stuff. That's what I meant when, yeah. I, when I said I heard it was a rough sit. Yeah. You, heard, you, you see some groping.
1: And you know what? It is to his credit that when— Your price, you mean? Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry. Uh, the person I'm about to mention. Dexter, oh. Ho- Dexter Holland from Offspring. Oh. Offspring, yeah. When they go to perform, he goes, uh, hey guys, I just wanted to mention something. He goes, I've been hearing a lot about like, like women, like crowd surfing. And as they do that, like guys are grabbing various things. He's, and he just basically says like, yeah, that's not cool. That's not an appropriate thing. Like they should not have to deal with that because they want to crowd surf like everybody else. And then, but then of course, so it's just like, huh? He like, stops his stops the show stops the momentum to say this thing and uh and i really respect that but then he goes he goes and by the way like he goes and ladies like if a guy is crowd serving grab his balls i'm like not helping dexter <laughs> holland not help i mean he's not saying it as a way of, like give the guy a thrill it's more just like uh ah, we're gonna uh, you know uh, give him a taste of their own medicine oh, right. just, um yeah. it's more that but nonetheless just like it, it, i get what you're doing but it's not helping um <laughs> but it's it's a very interesting it's a very interesting film, and one of the things that I like and they start pretty early is they mention the idea of, of uh, romanticizing the first woodstock uh, and that was a that was not a perfect event either, but partially because of the documentary, a lot of that stuff goes away, mm. and it's seen you know because hey if it's caught on film i'm seeing it in front of me, and anything that's not directly on the screen is not in my mind and eventually. People mistake the documentary for the actual event. Um, And the fact that somebody pointed that out is something I find very interesting. And it just kind of gets you thinking about the role that film and media play in our collective memory of things. Um, And so uh, it's definitely a film worth watching. I think it's tough, um, but it's worth watching.
0: Garrett Price is the guy who made Love Antosha.
1: Oh, oh, and I lo- I really loved that. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's you know, there's a lot of like re- it's a retrospective. So there's a lot of, you know, a lot of talking heads and that sort of thing. But it's interspersed with enough
0: footage from the event that it, it doesn't feel airless. Um, all right. Well, uh, you know what is terrible? Oh, what's that? Uh, Stephen Daldry's Together starring I've been uh, looking at reviews and,
1: and you seem to be a little bit in the minority nobody's saying it's amazing <sighs> but I don't I haven't
0: seen a lot of terrible okay well it's Stephen Daldry who's like a you know yeah a, a reliable, reliable guy. guy yeah but it's also James McAvoy and Sharon Horgan two actors I yeah. very much like and uh, the movie it's a pandemic movie it's about a, uh, a couple who they are um, they live together and have a kid they're not Married, they're raising a a, a kid together, um, and the movie. Uh, I'll paraphrase my own review. The movie is good for its first dozen or so seconds, <laughs> <laughs> because we see it's like March twenty twenty. Like there are little like dates that come up, and and they say like here's the date, and here's how many people in the UK have died of coronavirus at this point. Um, so it's like at the beginning, and like um, you see them unloading the. Groceries, they've done a grocery run and they're unloading groceries in the car and like they're skittish about whether or not they should let their son like carry groceries in from the car with them because I don't know. Like, I mean, early, I'll admit I was never doing this, but I know multiple people early pandemic who were like wiping down their individual groceries as they as they as they brought them home. Like because we didn't know anything, you know, and the movie for the first 12 seconds, I would really like (laughs) does a good job of, of, of bringing you back into that. That feeling, and then they bring in the groceries, and then James McAvoy and Sharon Horgan put down the groceries, and then turn and start talking to the camera. Yeah. And that's the movie. It's a dual soliloquy. I don't know if there's a term for that. I looked it up. Right. I don't know if there is. Uh, I couldn't find it. But it's an essentially an entire movie about these people undergoing the pandemic together. Oh, and guess what, Tyler? What's that? They're politically opposed this couple <laughs> it's Good the God. thing is an endurance test I, I I just it was not for me. I hated it so much every once in a while there'd be because every once in a while there are scenes that are just scenes, yeah there are these two actors going through this together, and I'm like, why?" Like, why am I spending most of the movie listening to two people describe to me the movie I wish I were watching when clearly they have the goods? There's a couple of scenes that are like good things, like two, two good actors uh, uh, really bouncing off I each mean, other and doing a great job. Like, I, I don't know why that this, premise is workable. I don't know. Uh, it's tough. I don't know. it is.
1: But like if you if you trust if you trust the actors, but to me, from a writing standpoint, if you're having them look at the camera constantly, you're not trusting the actors. You're not trusting the material. You're not trusting your premise, uh, because you're perpetually commenting on it and you're not trusting the audience.
0: Yeah. I I read one review that suggested it might have worked better on stage and I could, I could see that. I think it might've worked a little better on stage, but I still think it's, I don't know. There's much that you could do to salvage. This is, uh, intensely not for me. You know what it is for me? What's that? The new film by uh, Argentine director Matias Pinheiro. It's only the second of his that I've seen. Um, I've seen Viola, which is almost 10 years old now, mm-hmm. but he did um, The Princess of France and Ermia and Helena. Um, and basically all of his movies f- fall into the same general m- milieu, which is female artists, mostly actors, and Shakespeare so here you've got Isabella is a character from, uh, measure for measure, which is like a, it's one of the, uh, that sounds familiar. One of the weirder Shakespeare plays, okay. I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know very little about it. Yeah. And so the, the premise and to the extent that Isabella has like a plot plot, it's basically like two actresses who are friendly, not necessarily friends, but they're friendly. They're like peers in the scene. The, you know, the, uh, Buenos Aires like a uh, theater <laughs> scene. Yeah. Um, and they're both trying out for the same role of Isabella in measure for measure. That's, that's the premise again, in as much as there, it, it is, uh, there is a premise, but really his movies are, are kind of, um, uh, more interested in the, in the moments in between. They're kind of, they, they hang out, they talk about their, you know, their, uh, 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 anxieties, but also their hopes and dreams, and I think the his movies and this one in particular. I think I like this one better than Viola. Um, have a contain a depiction of the sort of artistic life in two ways. In one way, because the movies are so beautiful to look at um, and so sensory and experiential, there's a kind of heightened like oh this these women live these lives of like just being in the moment and just tactile beauty all the time. But on the other, on the other hand, their lives are also very workaday. Like they're not always just like getting to the depths of, you know, the human, whatever uh, experience. They also have to like, you know, find out what to do with their kid when they have to go to an audition. And like the, and they're friends with artists who are like, there's a lot of, uh, in in this movie, there's a lot of scenes of art, like multimedia, sort of uh installation type art, like being made, mm-hmm. and you realize, like, yeah, there's like some like esoteric, you know, impulse behind this person making this like three dimensional, like multifaceted, like light box thing, but also to get to that point, they have to like put on a pair of gloves and make the thing sure (laughs) you know and so there's like it's like art being created but it's also like just carrying a plank of wood up the stairs (laughs) like there's a this this great sort of duality of uh of the the ephemeral and uh the the everyday in in uh the the depiction of, of these artists lives and the uh the, the performances all around, especially the two main performances, uh, who's, I should probably should have looked up their names b- b- beforehand. Uh, Maria Villar and Agustina Munoz. Um, they're both, uh, really fantastic.
1: It's Isabella. Isabella. Okay. Yes. I was going to ask the Isabella. name again. Um, okay. So my next film is, uh, another documentary directed by Michael Pack, I believe. Uh, Yeah. And it is called created equal Clarence Thomas in his own words, being the resident conservative as I am. uh, I'm always curious to see just like Christian cinema. I'm always interested to see what could qualify as conservative cinema. And it's always interested. It's always interesting to me to hear from a, uh, not conservative, a controversial uh, public figure. And, So I was curious about this. It popped up on, I think, Canopy. So I I threw it on. And at first glance, it would seem to be heavily inspired stylistically by uh, the fog of war. Um, Mm -hmm. You've got this central figure that is controversial and associated with very specific things. And so it's like, all right, well, let's get this person's perspective. They seem very they seem oddly open uh about saying this stuff. And uh but stylistically and the idea of of your your subject like looking at the camera as he's talking about his life. Um so but this you know and it's it's interesting when he's talking about like uh, the way he was uh, the way he was raised and all that sort of thing and some of the stuff that he experienced like he went into the seminary uh but experienced racism there and decided like i don't think i want to do this anymore i'd rather go into the law uh into legal profession um so it's like yeah all right that's interesting um but the big difference, it's so interesting. I can't even really point to any one thing in the fog of war that leads me to believe that Errol Morris is genuinely trying to be objective. It, like, it, he really does seem to be giving McNamara a, a, a chance to speak his mind. But at no point did the film feel like a puff piece to me. Okay. This feels like a puff
0: piece. I see. I, I see. This, do you know what I mean? Like you watch yeah, it and. Yeah, that's what I hate about these kind of documentaries. Yeah. And not conservative ones, but just any like sort of like yeah. portrait of a great man or woman ro- you yeah. are always like, yeah.
1: So like when we get to Anita Hill, the film is, you know, it's, it asks him about the whole thing and it's like, yeah, okay, fine. But, And I guess it just comes down to like, okay, well, what what was the point of this movie? Is the point to try to get to the truth of a of a controversial figure, or is it quite literally to just be complimentary of this figure? And there's no yep. question in my mind; it's meant to be co- complimentary. And part of me is like, yeah, all right, f- w- but what's the what's the yeah. point of that? <laughs> you know, um, and I just it's, uh, it's, it's it's exhausting. The kind of to movie that's me. meant
0: to be uh, watched. In segments by people as they pass through a museum about, <laughs> <laughs> about exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah
1: it it feels like that and it's and it's unfortunate because I do think that the, the the format and the style has tremendous power if the director is willing to be like all right we're gonna try and do a warts and all kind of thing um, we're gonna ask questions we're gonna ask more than one question about a difficult moment uh, and. Right. Uh, and then we will really try and figure out what makes this person tick. Whereas this, it just seemed like such a, it seemed so folksy. And again, just like a, like a complete puff piece. And it was just seemed like a waste of time and resources.
0: Yeah, this is a, uh, uh, we, we, we did an episode a, a while ago on whether or not Hollywood movies are more conservative or liberal in their outlook. And this is yeah. sort of bringing that up. For me again, I don't want to go off on a whole thing. Oh, okay. But it is like I forget that, like, yeah, I understand Christian cinema is like a a, a niche. I forget that conservatives feel like they would need a niche because I think of right. like the worldview of Hollywood movies. tend to me tends to be like um, pretty conservative. Like maybe around award season, you get some that are like you know lip service liberal, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> you know, but, um, uh, I, fr- I, I forget that that's, uh, that conservatives feel like they need their own little
1: niche. I think it's very much a situation where like, if you have a movie, I mean, I'm going back, you know, 21 years, but this to me is, is one that I point to like the movie, the contender where like, if you're, if you're dealing with a movie that's that shows politics. If you have a Republican Senator, they're probably the villain uh, of some kind, or they're, they're definitely someone we are not meant to sympathize with. So it's just stuff like that. It's just sort of the, the sort of what is viewed as sort of the default setting. Things are very different. Once you get into the military, like when movies about the military, I think things, I mean, most,
0: yeah, military. And also, I think, I mean, most genre films, like I understand why, Christian audiences don't necessarily like horror because it sure. picks things they think are immoral but also they the don't movies. like it yet but give but, it <laughs> <yeah>. just wait <laughs> but also horror movies tend to punish people for being like quote unquote yeah. it, it, it immoral and of course like we don't you know, I tend the superhero films I think tend to have a pretty conservative worldview as well oh sure uh, alright so I'll move on to maybe I maybe I was just stalling because I didn't want to talk about this movie oh okay uh, this a new restoration of a movie from 1988 it said Merchant Ivory production, but it's not a, uh, a James Merchant uh, movie. Uh, it's directed by Nicholas Meyer, who made Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. Oh yes, okay. which is a good movie. Okay, uh, this movie is called The Deceivers, and it is not a good movie. It is based on a true story. Okay, um, Pierce Brosnan plays uh, a British officer stationed in India. Like most, so many of these Merchant sure. Ivory movies uh, are about Brits in India, um, who. Uh, through sort of a contrivance of events, end up ends up stumbling upon a traveling band of thieves and murderers called the Tuggies. This is all real; they're real. Okay. Um, and here's where it gets ridiculous, especially from a 2021 point of view. It becomes an undercover cop movie. Pierce Brosnan goes undercover amongst the tuggies. You saw. You already see it's going. This is a movie where Pierce Brosnan spends like the entire movie in brownface. Oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> and
1: yeah. you know, there's a lot of things. There are a lot of problems with that. But one is. Pierce Brosnan like yeah you you can you can paint his skin however you want he looks about as British or Irish yeah, that, as you as can be that's
0: a big part of like what I kept I mean I, I know suspension of disbelief and all but like other than the one guy who knows he's undercover yeah. everyone is just like oh your name's Gupta okay hey Gupta yeah. welcome welcome to the yeah. to the <laughs> to the gang the only person <laughs> who
1: looks whiter is see Thomas
0: Howell and soul man yeah yeah um but like it's so that's obviously a, 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 a problem and like it brings with it other problems of the movies. The movie's premise is that the more time he spends with these murderers, the more like sort of a savage he becomes, which also like is, <laughs> is oh problematic. Wow. This like, is not the Molly Maguire's.
1: I uh, thought that's where we were headed. Uh, uh, I, for, I never saw from the from Molly a story, but yeah, standpoint.
0: Um, I just, uh, it's, it's, it's too broad and corny, and then on top of that, it uh, does not hold up to any scrutiny at all in terms of its worldview. Wasn't Pierce Brosnan also in a movie called Gray Owl, where he plays like a
1: Native American or oh, something man, like I that?
0: <laughs> yeah. I don't recall now. Um, I don't know why we keep seeing, wanting to see Pierce Brosnan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's perfectly yeah, fine. He's, he's got a good niche. Uh, yeah, stick with it. Let him do his thing. Um, but then I watched a movie I really liked, a movie that I... I think came up on the fall movie preview that I said that I was nervous about watching this because I had just watched together and I was like, Oh no, another pandemic. But I, this is a night and day. Couldn't be a more different movie. It's an anthology film called the year of the everlasting storm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's seven short films. Um, Oh yes, that's right. Made by directors from all over the world about life during uh, a, a pandemic. And they are mostly, documentaries or I don't even know if that term really applies I think there are only two that are very clearly scripted okay then there's the Jafar Panahi Panahi sorry I saw three faces where they say his name a million times so I have to remember it's Panahi Panahi I've always said Jafar Panahi it's Panahi yeah because literally if you see three faces it's an entire movie of people being like Mr. Panahi Mr. Panahi Um, so anyway uh, the Jafar Panahi one is if you know his style, especially his like, since he's been banned from making movies, which he hasn't stopped making movies, but he's been banned from making movies. His movies tend to be like hybrids. So on the surface, uh, his film, which I think is the first one, if I remember correctly, um, is just a documentary of his mother coming to live with him and his wife Hmm. during lockdown. Um, and it's very, a very, uh, sweet movie, but, uh, I don't think it's as, I, I do think it's staged in some ways. Okay. Um, but it's a it's a very sweet movie, especially if you've... I feel like I've come to know... Obviously, I've, I've liked his films from before he was banned from making films, but the films he's made since he was banned from making films are often about him, because that's kind of right. how he gets around it. It's like, oh, it's just like I'm just shooting footage, you right. know? Um, so I feel like I've come to... So, like, you will recognize things, including there's... Um, he has a pet... Or it's actually his daughter's pet uh, but his daughter's like grown and living in Europe uh, at this point so he has a pet i don't know what kind of lizard it is but it's a big like 4 foot long like lizard named iggy that has been in multiple movies so uh, iggy plays a big part in oh, good, in, yes. in this one because uh, grandma jafar's mom doesn't like iggy at first
1: oh <laughs> so um, it's, it's like uh, it's like beethoven
0: yeah yeah <laughs> yeah I hate our lizard. Um, <laughs> so uh, when Iggy like shakes all the wa- all the water off of him. Okay, yeah. um, but on that kind of like countdown, I'll go through all seven of them. I'll say, um, and apparently another thing I'm in the mor- minority on. I think um, David Lowry's is the um, is the weakest. It's the most. Uh, uh, false. I mean, David Lowry's and Anthony Chen's are the ones that are like very obviously scripted, mm. but David Lowry's feels underwritten and also kind of like contrived. It actually takes place after the pandemic, So it takes place in a uh-huh. near future, like after the pandemic is, is, is over. It's got it's some, it's David Lowry, So it's got some like yeah. pretty like sort of magic hour, like visuals and stuff. Um, but uh his was my my, my least favorite uh, uh other ones uh so epic chat pong cool the guy who made uncle boomy who can recall his best lives he has the final one and it's so great hmm. um so simple of an idea and yet um so transfixing uh his is my favorite then there's a uh, the American well, I guess David Lowry, there are two American ones, David Lowry and then a guy named Malik Vital, who makes a documentary with sort of like some animation flourishes. That's about a, it's a, it's about a guy who like had some trouble early, early in his life and lost custody of his kids. His kids are in the foster system. Okay. He's now getting his life back together and has partial like monitored visitation rights. But obviously during the pandemic, that's changed how those happen. So it's basically like about a guy who was already, it was already difficult for him to see his, his kids and, and this uh, uh, has, has changed that. So there's a number of different, different takes um, on, on, on pandemic life. Uh, yeah. Anthony Chen's that that's the, the Chinese one is very good um, uh, of the two, like obviously scripted one ones that's definitely the best, best one, but uh, yeah, definitely worth
1: the way car buying should be. Uh, Your turn. Uh, My turn, okay. Uh, This is a rewatch, a film I haven't seen in many, many, many years Uh, and I chose to watch it uh, as the first movie in my film aesthetics class because I was curious to see what my students would think and that is Roger Michel's Changing Lanes. Oh, wow. Um, Because, I mean, that's 2002 so we were in college when it came out. 19 years ago. (laughs) Yeah, Look how far we've come. You mean you and me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're doing all right. Yeah. It's a lot more gray in the beard, Um, but uh, I'm fine (laughs) with that.
0: Yeah. If you okay, if you were to tell college you, like college you could see your life now, mm -hmm. would he be happy? I think college me would be happy. I.
1: you know what? Uh, yeah, I think college me would be pretty happy.
0: I think high school me would be like on the fence. Right. Middle school me would be like, what have you done? You're like not. You're not cool. Sure. At all. You're not <laughs> punk, regardless of how much <laughs> you insist you are. Yeah, I insist. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. It's. Uh, and but the thing is, like one of the reasons that I that I picked is because I feel like college is kind of college age is sort of the perfect time to see changing lanes. Okay. Like it really affected me at that time. Cause the film, you know, it's, <coughs> it's asking a lot of ethical questions. It's exploring gray area and it's doing so in a way that's kind of big
0: and broad. Yeah. That's what I remember. Uh, not that I, cause I remember kind of liking it, but I think what I was turned off by was that it felt like it was more of like a, Uh, a moral or thought experiment first
1: uh that's that's how i think of it i think back on it as i remember uh it feels the same as like crash like the paul haggis crash like big emotions big ideas not a lot of nuance uh and i remember um i seem to recall ebert who loved crash i he i think he called it like a fable it's like that's a that's a good way to approach yeah. crash. And I think it's a good way to approach changing lanes. Um, because fables do sort of truck in their ideas first. Yeah. Um, but within that, the film holds up a lot more than I thought it was from a performance standpoint. Ben Affleck is doing really good work. Um, Samuel Jackson, unsurprisingly, is great. Sydney Pollack, uh, and William Hurt and Amanda Amanda Pete I believe. Okay. Um, great cast all around. Dylan Baker Ooh. is uh, is in it as like the the hacker that uh, is this family man, but and his job is to just ruin people's lives uh, and stuff like that. Would would be really on the nose in its own way, if not for the performances and just the the way that it's uh, the way that things unfold i think it's structured really interestingly and it's so i was curious i was definitely curious to know what my students thought and a lot of them really liked it they said it was like really stressful and uh but that they were just really and they said they said i think what the director was intending it was like it's like i didn't really know who to root for i just wanted them both to do the right thing and i was like yeah you're rooting for civility that's right. that's that's our hero here and uh you're not sure if the hero is going to win by the end um but yeah it's a film that i think knowing what we know about it knowing that it's it's speaking in very broad terms but within that allowing the actors to kind of explore their characters i think it's and i think it's really i think it's really uh the pacing is very tight and it's it's definitely worth a a rewatch if you get the chance
0: okay um i saw a movie that uh I think I'm allowed to talk about oh. Yeah, I'm allowed to talk about this. Um, doesn't come out uh, for a week or so. Um, Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Wife of a Spy. Okay. Um, but I am realizing I might only have nine movies because I do have one that I don't know if I can talk about later, uh, which is too bad. But anyway, Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Wife of a Spy um, takes place in Japan in the 1940s. Uh, and it's about a woman whose husband maybe a, a spy okay. he's um um it's a, you know at the time that that japan is starting to ally itself with 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 germany and italy and this th- this couple is very i don't know what do you call like an okay an american who loves england is an anglophile mm-hmm. american who loves france is like a francophile francophile yeah i wonder what a japanese person who loves america is oh i don't i don't (laughs) want to verbally uh Um, hypothesize but uh so like there's already suspicion about him to to begin with uh so the movie has this very the costumes are great the production design is great it has this very like this is going to be like a lush like period spy thriller it has all of those trappings but what's interesting about it and weirdly not a disappointment uh is that it's much more of like a domestic marriage drama than than like it has spy shit going on especially as it goes as the movie goes on but uh um really it's just this uh, it's about a wife who wants to feel close to her husband and involved in her husband's life even if that potentially means betraying her, her country um uh, it's yeah, really, really good, uh, really fun to look at, really good main performances by you Aoi and Isi Takahashi um, are the the main the main couple. Um, I really, I really liked it. Um, Kyoshi Kurosawa I still a director who made his name making horror movies. I've still seen. I've seen three of his films now. None of them are horror. Okay. <laughs> I, I seem to be like intentionally dancing around his, uh, the, the, the movies that actually made him famous. Uh, and then I'll move on to another movie that we talked about on the fall movie preview. Kazik Redwanski's and at 13,000 feet. Okay. thought I was going to love this. I certainly like the title. I like a, a long evocative title. Um, Scott, last week, said that he, he liked this movie when he saw it back at AFI Fest 2019, compared it to a Woman under the influence that definitely uh, tracks. But um, it, the, the, the movie's about a, a, a young woman in, in Toronto who works at a daycare, lives on her own, I don't know, drinks too much, sometimes is too childish around the kids she works with. Basically the movie's about sort of mental illness, quote unquote, but in like a vaguely defined way, which I think is maybe part of my problem with yeah. it, is that like mental illness isn't just like a, uh, a hat you put on. I don't know. Yeah. There's a lot of different it's kinds of mental vibe. illness. Yeah. And it also felt like the 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 style of the movie, which is very, um, very handheld, lots of close-ups. Um, on the one hand, I think it does it does a good, I guess it, it goes away toward trying to be inside her head to being subjective. Like I was saying uh, earlier, but it also feels like a style of like independent film, independent European film, European art house film, whatever that I've seen before. um, That just feels like, uh, Oh, look how, how how intimate look how like uh uh fly on the wall or 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 um uh, uh in the in the passenger seat at various different times uh the the camera can be and it just the movie just felt like it felt like it it felt like, a, like I hate saying that i love film festivals but it felt like a film festival movie in kind of like a just uh checking off a list type sure report. for me I don't I, know. yeah I, know I a lot get of what you like. mean but uh, uh, great lead performance I mean it's uh, uh, Dara, Dara or Dara Campbell um, plays Anne uh, it's a really uh, wholly embodied lead performance I can't uh, deny her that but uh, I didn't connect to it the way I wanted to I have to look up if I can talk about my next movie or not okay Uh, Well, while you're doing that, I'm going to talk
1: about Peter Graham Scott's Night Creatures. Uh, This is a hammer horror film, and uh, I've watched a few while uh, while putting together this uh, documentary that I've been making, and and in doing so, I realized that I just need to watch every hammer horror movie that exists. Um, It's just such a specific tone that is... You know, when when I heard about Hammer Horror, I thought that there would be a sort of tongue-in-cheek quality to it, like it sort of knows how silly it can be. Oh, yeah, okay. And it's it is that and it's not. It's it's never winking. It's not even really tongue-in-cheek, but you can still get a sense of the fun. Um and so the story here, I I I don't want to go into too much detail cause it's a film I genuinely loved and I don't want to spoil this movie from 1962. Oh. <laughs> um, but, uh, <coughs> it, it starts off with uh, a pirate captain named captain Clegg. Uh, and he's known for being particularly fierce. And, uh, one of his, uh, uh crew members, uh, may have gone, uh, may have like, uh, cheated uh may uh, captain Clegg's wife may have like cheated with this crew member. So okay. he like, he cuts out his tongue and he like slashes his ears or whatever. So that he like bursts his eardrums and then he strands him on an island. Uh, and so it's like, okay, that's kind of out of nowhere. Let's, uh, let's go elsewhere. And so you see like, uh, and I, I think it's a, I think it's a British colony. It might be an American colony. Now I don't recall everyone, Everyone's British uh, right. <laughs> in this colony, and so, uh, and there are the the uh, oh shoot, what are they like the the marsh ghosts or something like that? Now I don't remember the name, but there's like this local super, superstition at this in this small town that if you go out on the marshes, like these ghosts will will haunt you and probably scare you to death. And so, in the midst of all, oh yes, it's British. It is British. Pardon me. And so, in the midst of all this a number of like, uh, naval, uh, like Navy men come into this town, uh, to investigate, uh, the idea of, of illegally importing French goods. What, what does any of this have to do with anything else? Hard to explain without getting, uh, okay. into the story, but essentially they use as, as, a as sort of bloodhound. The Navy men have found this, Uh, this stranded pirate uh, who can't talk and can't really hear, but he has a, he has a, he can get the scent of wine of, of a specific kind of French wine. And so he gives them reason to believe that maybe this entire town is involved with something. Uh, And the local preacher played wonderfully, of course, by Peter Cushing Mm -hmm. Um, may, may be the one in charge of it all. But also might be doing all of it for a good cause and does seem to have some connection with Captain Clegg, who is buried in this town. There's, It's so complex. You wouldn't expect it. And yet it doesn't feel... It's it's complex to explain, but it unfolds in a way that's, that's patient, but the film is not very long. Um, and it just really... I just love the atmosphere. I love the performances. A young Oliver Reed is also in it. Um, And I just really appreciate the world of it. And something that I tweeted was uh, that like when I think of somebody like a Tim Burton, we think about the German expressionism. But the more hammer I watch, the more I see the influence, not just in his work, but also like the movie Crimson Peak by Del Toro. That is 100 percent like yeah. a hammer horror type film. Uh, and this one especially got me thinking co- almost completely about Sleepy Hollow or uh, like that story. I remember thinking, like, why did they adapt it this way where there's like a weird conspiratorial thing? And then I watched this. I was like, oh, I, I see what he's doing here. Yeah. And uh, what I, it's called? Uh, called Night Creatures. Okay. It, I believe it had an alternate title, which they is did. Captain Clegg. Yeah. They all did. It um, time. I know it as Night Creatures, yeah. and it's absolutely worth watching. It
0: is a delight, David. Okay, so I only have one more because I can't talk oh, about okay. it. It's so frustrating when I can't talk about a movie I really liked. You can talk about it after the... Uh, the. Well, no. It's the stuff we've seen since we, uh, the last God. time we did one of these. That's I, right. I forgot that you are gonna do that okay uh, it goes into the ether but i can't talk about another, about another movie that's coming out uh this week uh basam Tariq's mogul Mowgli, which is as we discussed uh last week it is the um or, or the most recent episode uh the second movie in which riz Ahmed plays a musician who's suddenly struck uh, with a debilitating uh affliction mm-hmm. here he's a uh, a rapper who's been in the game for a long time um uh who very suddenly um can't use his legs and it turns out he has this degenerative muscle mm-hmm. um disease um and I'll, I'll put a pin in the movie for a second and talk about riz ahmed and how um this is the first movie because he's like i said part of his story is that he's been at this a long time he's on the older end of rappers Mm -hmm. there are parts in this movie when he's like being helped in and out of the shower because he can't move anymore where you see you can tell that his hair is thinning Mm -hmm. and i'm uh i'm like oh this is the movie where riz ahmed stops being like a young man (laughs) like he's like a man now because he is like Cause Ahmed's our age. Yeah. Uh, he, I think he reads young. He has yeah. kind of a higher voice and he's, yeah. I don't know if,
1: I don't know if he's short, but he kind of has like a, he's sort of mousy looking. I don't mean that in a negative no, way. No, but, yeah, like but he's always a, read yeah.
0: young. I mean, look, I mean like the night of was only five years ago and he's supposed to be like, like college age in, mm. in that, I think. So, but here, this is a movie where Riz Ahmed is actually playing his age and you see it and that's part of, uh, um, Uh, I guess it's sad to be in your late (laughs) thirties. I would agree. (laughs) Um, I'm loving, I'm loving every minute of it. Um, But uh, yeah, so there, obviously the comparisons to sound of metal have to be addressed. And I would say there is something in the character of that, like being in denial of what's happening to them because they're like, no, I have to do this. No, you don't understand. I'm going on this tour or whatever. Yeah, uh, it is. There's, there's that. But in terms of the style of the movie, they're night and day. Mm-hmm. It's a very different style because the, um, Mogul Mowgli works as the story that it is, but it's also very much an allegory, a parable. That He's, he's told by one of the doctors that what's happening is that his body is attacking itself. And this is clearly related to his feelings about his own identity as uh, a, a, a Pakistani, or Pakistani, uh, a person of Pakistani heritage who was born and raised in London, feeling like uh, feeling like a Londoner, you know, um, and but also being seen as as Pakistani and, and not knowing how to, uh, you know, he gets it from both sides the mm-hmm. the other rappers you know we, we see like flashbacks to his like early like battle rap days and like the black rappers are accusing him of cultural appropriation whereas like his family is like this is you know you're not this is what you're doing isn't right why are you going You know, your name's is here why are you going by Zed mm-hmm. you know why are you having this anglicized name why are you- there's one guy like there's a part where he's like he leaves the mosque in the middle of service. Cause it can't handle it to go smoke a joint in the alleyway. A guy who works at the mosque recognizes him as a fan of his, him as a rapper and is like, Oh, can I hit that joint or whatever? And then he, and so Zed hands him the joint with his left hand. And the guy kind of like scolds him. Like it's not friend. Like it's, I, I don't I don't know about these sort of yeah. like Muslim traditions or whatever, but like it's, uh, uh, the proper way to hand someone something is with your right hand I guess and so the idea that this guy is like oh yo I love your you know your, your songs and yeah I'll, I'll smoke that joint with you but it's also scolding him like he's getting it from every side yeah. all the time and so this this thing that he's um, uh, that he's going through is you know, it's real within the movie, but it's also clearly used as a yeah. an allegorical device. Um, and like I said, you see flashbacks. A lot of as he's losing his senses a little bit, there's a lot of surreal, surreality to the movie, sort of things like from the past bleeding into the present or the other way uh, uh, around. Like there's a scene where he's, it's a memory of like him, Working at his dad's restaurant when he was a kid but then it also bleeds into a memory of like his early hip-hop shows and so you've got like dudes rapping and dancing on the tables at his dad's restaurant at the same time it's it's it all sort of bleeds together it's very very cool uh, I liked it a lot it's a great uh, uh, performance uh, it also has um, one of the saddest scenes that I've seen in some time that I don't want to go too far into but he uh he has to call an ex girlfriend hmm. um and uh it's a very like low point for him it's it's beautifully acted by Riz and uh incredibly sad okay um you should have one more right? i do have one okay. more yeah um i have uh
1: pronunciation might be an issue here uh, i don't know if this is a, a hard j but uh, maybe Yannick ambros Yannick Ambrose's uh Mondo Hollywood Land, a uh, low budget experimental comedic yeah. uh, uh satire of, of Hollywood and Los Angeles and Produced by James Cromwell somehow? Produced somehow by James Cromwell.
0: And also uh, Yannick might be listening. <laughs> he might be. <laughs> because he uh, uh he we know that he is a listener of this. Yeah. Podcast. Uh,
1: so sorry if I mispronounced your name. Um, and yeah, and I, I will be writing a, a review of it uh, soon. Um, I just have not had uh, the time, unfortunately. But I know, um,
0: like. I know how that
1: goes. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, so the film it is it is very low budget, and there are times when it shows its budget. Um, like there, there will be. And they're just their movies that they have a certain feel like when they're uh, not merely lower budget, but just I don't know. You can you're not sure how much everybody is invested. That sounds mean, but like. There will be a scene between two characters and the sound isn't quite right. It's not crystal clear and it just kind of feels like every they're just kind of doing it on the fly. Uh, I'm leading with my like a negative criticism because i want to say like there aren't that many moments like that uh if the film were mostly that that would be unfortunate there are are only a couple moments that really kind of kind of drag a little bit and you're just like oh, okay this doesn't feel like 100 percent professional however the rest the the rest of the film is really fascinating uh i think the film is beautifully edited wonderfully shot a really nice use of color as i say it's a little bit experimental it is not a traditional narrative by any stretch of the imagination it does follow certain characters and i think the characters that it follows uh i think the performers do a really great job i actually uh think the cast is really good um and it would seem to okay I'll, I'll I'll try to describe it. This is, I actually I'm going to have a harder time talking about this than I did Night Creatures. Uh it starts <laughs> off with a character who who is never seen. It's ba- the camera's basically his POV and he's a Werner Herzog type. Uh I'm sure that type
0: because there's so many of those. Well, <laughs> just <laughs> like <laughs> but as as, he's like modeled on
1: Yeah, just like the way he's sort of narrating what we're seeing okay. and just like the kind of You know, Werner Herzog, when he narrates a documentary, it's a very specific cadence. Uh, And it's that. And it's this character who's not a character uh, from the fifth dimension. And he's trying to figure out what Hollywood is. Uh, And then somebody describes it as Mondo. So then he's like, okay, I need to figure out what Mondo means. Uh, And in doing so, he goes to this guy who grows mushrooms. And uh, that leads him to this other guy who is like a Hollywood executive and it's it all sounds so self-indulgent and it is but in a way i like uh where the filmmaker is not that interested in it making perfect sense to you but not as a cop-out i think exp- especially with low budget i mean this goes back to like when we were back at uh, back at school anytime somebody made an experimental film not anytime but most of the time it almost felt like they're like well, look. I don't have the money to do a narrative, <laughs> and I don't, and I don't have the time to do a narrative. So you know what? I'll just have a, a be a bunch of weird images, like someone staring at it themselves in a mirror, or likely fetal position in a bathtub. Fetal
0: position in a bathtub.
1: Stand, yeah. you know, very standard thing. This doesn't feel like that. It feels. It definitely feels like the director is trying to do something, and there is a very deliberate quality to the editing, to the photography, uh, and it's it's a film that. I could see I could see some people really not liking. I really appreciated it because, despite it being low budget, it was nonetheless ambitious, and that's rare. And it was very uh, it was very exciting.